Thanks, Martin, for leading us in prayers this morning and bringing that reminder of the work and the need for prayer for Operation Agri. Um, just before I go on, there's two, uh, two notices that I uh, forgot to mention at the start of the service because um, they weren't on my list. Um, one is that we've got an evening service tonight, so if you're, um, if you're around tonight, come along and worship with us. That would be, that'd be really good. Um, and the other, please be praying for um, Alf. Alf... Um, uh, sits at the back with, with Roy every week and they sit there causing trouble together. Um, this morning, um, uh, Alf had to go to hospital. We took a, um, a, a funny turn. We know no more than that, but um, he's being looked after. He's in the best place uh, that he can be, so just let's be praying um, for him um, that he makes a swift recovery. As we continue this series looking at the characteristics of our church we come now to the penultimate one, which works out really well because um, next week we've got the, the Baptist Missionary Society here, so there'll be sort of a, um, a week's gap. And then the, the last one is on the 2nd of July, which, as I've already said, is going to be a baptismal service. And the subject for that sermon is, is being kingdom-inspired. And what a, what a great subject to preach on at a baptismal service, being kingdom-inspired. So I'm really excited about that, looking forward to that one. Um, and I hope you are too. But let's not, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, because today is another um, really important subject. It's a really important characteristic that we, that we need to, to look at and consider and think what it means in biblical terms, and then think what it means for us to be to be demonstrators of this characteristic, how, we can, how that can manifest itself in us as a church as we go out into the world. And that is being community committed. On our website, we're, we're community committed, and it says how we love getting involved in the community and sharing Jesus with, with people through, um, through what we do in our community. It's always difficult, isn't it, when we go out and meet unchurched people because we take with us a, a set of values and teachings and ideas that, that come, come from Jesus and then we go out into a world that doesn't yet know Jesus and we can find that the two often collide and it can be really awkward it's like having two jigsaw pieces and thinking great I can put them together and then working out they're from different puzzles and they don't quite fit but the passage we're going to look at today reminds us of the, the malleability of God. Reminds us that, that if we get caught up in the, in the legalism, the strict legalism of God, then we miss the point of the spirit of God. This morning, uh, sorry, not this morning, this week even, um, on Thursday it was, um, Paolo and I um, go to a, uh, a lunch for local Baptist ministers um, uh, as often as we can, and um, there was one of these meetings this week, and we went along, and it was hosted at the hospital. And there were two chaplains there, two ordained Baptist ministers who they don't have, uh, they're not ministers in, in churches, they're ministers in the hospital. And they spoke to us about their work, and it was fascinating. It was, it was brilliant. It was a real blessing to spend time with these guys, and hopefully um, at some point soon we'll get one of them to come along and, and preach one Sunday morning, because they'll bring a very fresh perspective on the gospel. But one of the things that they said was, uh, they spoke about many different examples of, of times when they've been asked to intervene in a situation, to come into a situation where what they have always believed has been challenged. They've been put in, in situations where they've been, they've been asked to do something, asked to, to, to pray in a certain way that they haven't been entirely comfortable with. There's one guy who said, I'm a Baptist minister. I was once asked to sort of give the last rites. And I said, I, I'm, not, I'm not a Catholic. I can't really do this. But then I looked at these parents who were trying to say goodbye to their child. And I thought... What wins here? What's the right thing to do here? Stick to legalism and say, God doesn't allow me to do that. My understanding of God prevents me from, from, from comforting you and doing, giving your, your child this, this last dying moment that you, that you want as parents. Or do I put legalism to one side and say, do you know what? If God is a God of love, then on this occasion, in these circumstances... 
I will do that. And it was really challenging. It was really, it was really good time, really good to hear what these guys were talking about. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to get, getting them in here to, to, to speak to you um, about their experiences. But it reminded me, as I was going through Acts, we've, gone, we've started off with the ascension and we've worked through um, the, the, the forming of the early church and what that looked like, and we've seen Pentecost and we've seen the response to, to sermons that were preached very early on. Some of them triggered um, uh, mass conversion, some of them triggered murder. There was a real mixed reaction. And we've looked at these and we've, we've considered some of the different characteristics that we claim to have as a church, that claim, we claim define us as a church. And we've looked at the early church and seen what we can learn from the early church and, and what the early church teaches us. Last time, last time we came together, we spoke about, we spoke about Stephen. And we spoke about the way that it's so easy for us to convince ourselves that we're the ones in control, that we understand what's going on in the world around us. But of course, we, we spoke about Stephen and how he was, he was challenged and he refused to budge on his faith and he preached this powerful sermon and, and the, the, these irate Jews eventually ended up stoning him to death. And in the crowd there, at the very least, holding the cloaks, possibly even... Joining in with the, with the act itself was a young man named Saul. We spoke about how Stephen was stoned to death, this barbaric, murderous act. But then God used that. Don't get me wrong, he, he didn't plan for, he didn't want that to happen, but he knew it was going to happen. But God can use any set of circumstances and sure enough, we see the stoning of, of, of Stephen. It triggered this persecution. But we can't persecute God because God is the one with the authority and control. And we see that this persecution broke out against the church and the apostles were scattered. And suddenly the words of Jesus to go and to be my, my disciples, to go to, to all nations, suddenly we see Jesus' plan began to be put into place. Things started happening Remember the stone in the mill pond and the ripples spreading out as the apostles spread from Jerusalem. Some of them stayed there and, and, and persevered with the early church as this persecution was taking place, but many of them spread to new places. Now Luke, the author of Acts, he was writing to quite a sort of a confused, a confused readership. A readership who were trying to make sense of everything that had happened. Who were trying to understand, remind themselves of, of what Jesus had said, of who Jesus was and, and how we should be responding to Jesus. Well, today I want us to, to consider, as we think about what it means to be community committed, Consider something incredibly special that is very easy to miss in the book of Acts. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Pentecost, and we spoke about how this, is, this should be for us as Christians on a par with Christmas Day. Christmas Day, when, when the Father sent the Son into the world, the birth, the miraculous conception, the, the virgin birth. We celebrate that. And we get all excited about it. And we have a, we have a tree and we have, we have um, holidays and it's all, it's all wonderful. Because, of course, it's, it's, been, it's been adopted and, and turned into this, this corporate behemoth. Which is so easy to... It's, it can be so easily lost. The true message can be so easily lost within that. Pentecost is different. Most of the world will be unaware that Pentecost takes place, but it is the day when, when the Son, having ascended back to the Father's right hand, the Son had promised that he would send his Spirit into the world, that his Spirit would be poured out for all people. And sure enough, we see that on the day of Pentecost. We see the Holy Spirit being poured out and then shared and then spread as we read further on through Acts. But you see, because this has happened in Jerusalem... Because this has happened 
in the city of David, the heart of Israel. There was still a sense at this point that this was the Jewish God doing something a little bit different, a little bit odd. Things were changing, but it was still quite localized. Well, in Acts chapter 10, we see that changing. Acts chapter 10 contains a moment which, which is almost, it's almost like a, not a second Pentecost, but it's almost sort of a, um, a, a demonstration of the importance of what Pentecost was. So in Acts chapter 10, we meet in a place called Caesarea, we meet a man named Cornelius. We're told he was a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Now, in that region, archaeological digs have thrown up coins with the inscription of this regiment on them. So we know historically, archaeologically, the evidence ties up that at this time, it makes sense. There was a centurion there from that regiment. They were called the Italian Regiment. They were a regiment of the Roman army, but they were mainly made up of foreigners, Local soldiers or soldiers from elsewhere, they weren't sort of um, pure Romans, but they were people who had been almost conscripted into the Roman army. Chances are a centurion, someone with a bit of authority and rank, probably would have been Roman, but we can't be sure. What we can be sure of is that he wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile. He was an outsider. Now, we know that Jesus has already demonstrated the importance of breaking down these barriers, breaking down this them and us that existed between Jew and Gentile. He spoke to the woman at the well, a Samarian woman. It should never have happened. But Jesus broke down that barrier to go and speak to her. He talks about the Good Samaritan, a parable where he taught that loving your neighbor is more important than these, these barriers that existed between people groups. So this centurion, he's at home one day, and we're told that he was, um, he was, he was God-fearing. He was devout and God-fearing. So he was a Gentile who, was, who, who respected and who, who worshipped the Jewish God, but he wasn't a Jew. So he was kind of a halfway house between the two, if you like. He gave generously to those in need and he prayed to God regularly. So he loved God and he loved his neighbor. One day, about three o'clock in the afternoon, very specific, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius says, what is it, Lord? The angel says, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. Cornelius is pretty stunned by this. Well, you would be, wouldn't you? Suddenly this, this angel appears. You've been worshipping someone else's God and you've been trying to um, adhere to the, the teachings that you've heard, but you know you're not quite one of his. You're sort of, you're, you're, rather than being a, a purebred, you're, you're, you've joined rather than having been born into it. There would have been some who treated him like a second-class citizen. There would have been some who looked down on him because he wasn't Jewish. He would have felt that. He would have been aware of that. And suddenly this angel appears to him and said, God's noticed you. Me? Me? What have I done? God's noticed you. He's noticed the, the, the way you've lived to try and honour him. And so now I'm telling you, as an angel of the Lord, to go and to find one who is called Peter. The angel even gives the address. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Tells him exactly where to go. So off Cornelius gathers his, his household and, and gets two servants and a soldier, and he tells them what's happened, and he says, you better go. So he's obedient. Straight away we see obedience. So while all this is going on, Peter's got no idea. Peter has absolutely no idea. He's trying to work out, he's probably looking at maps and charts and working out where he should go next and what, what God's calling him to do. He would have been praying. Absolutely no idea what's going on with Cornelius. We're told about noon the following day, as, as, as these guys were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto his roof to pray. I don't know about you, but the worst time for me to pray is when I'm hungry. 
If I'm fasting, that's different because I know that hunger is, a, is kind of the whole point of it. But if it's just a regular day, then I need to make sure I've eaten something before I pray. Because otherwise, I'm, my mind's on food. And I take great heart from the fact that I'm not, um, I'm not alone in that because Peter was exactly the same. He goes up to the roof to pray, but he gets hungry and wants something to eat. So he orders for a meal to be prepared. And while the meal is being prepared, while he's got all these thoughts of food going around in his head, he sort of goes into a bit of a, bit of a trance, and he sees this, this vision. He sees all of heaven opening, and what looks like a great white sheet descending. And on this sheet, there are all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. And a voice says, Peter, get up, kill and eat. Kill and eat. Peter says, Peter, he's shocked by this. Not just by the vision, not just by the voice. He's more shocked by the fact that he is hearing what he takes to be the the voice of, of God or an angelic voice, and it is in direct contravention with everything he's ever been taught. The Torah, the the Jewish law, set out in in the the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, makes it absolutely clear which animals can be eaten, which animals must not be eaten, and how the food should be prepared. So to hear someone just nonchalantly saying, get up, kill, eat, anything you like, anything you like, all these four-footed animals, the birds, the reptiles, tuck in, buffet, go for it. Peter says, surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Those words that that were directly from the law that had been given to the Israelites originally, that had been carried on from generation to generation to generation, the legalism that had had crept in as they sought to, to, to stick to the law as much as they possibly could. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. But the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And then the sheet goes back up to heaven. Peter sort of snaps out of it a bit. And he's, he's dwelling on this. He's trying to work out what this means. He'd have been thinking, he was still hungry, presumably. The meal might have arrived, we're not told. But he was thinking about food. He was thinking about this very much in the context of food. But there was a much bigger message here that he was about to find out. He still had no idea at this point of what had happened with Cornelius. He's still thinking about the conflict between Jewish law and how you, how you understand that in the context of what Jesus had taught. And that was quite confusing because there were so many, so many barriers that the law seemed to put in, in the way of life that Jesus then knocked down. It's one of the reasons Jesus, we often say he was, he was revolutionary. But he certainly was if you were a, a first century Jew. And while Peter's mulling all this over, there's a knock on the door. There's a knock on the door. And the men that were sent by Cornelius, um, they've, they've arrived at Simon and Tanner's house by the sea. Sounds like a lovely little location just on the banks of the Mediterranean. And Peter's, Peter hears this voice saying, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Utter confusion. What's going on? If you've shown me this sheet, you've shown me all these animals, you've told me what it feels like you've just told me to, to ignore some of the teachings of the law that you gave to my people that we've, we've really fought and tried to uphold throughout generations, and now you're, you're telling me, you've given me this vision, and now there's a knock on the door, and I've got to go with three complete strangers somewhere. What? This makes no sense. This makes no sense. How often do we find ourselves in situations where we think this makes no sense? Lord, why is this happening? Why has this decision been made? Why has this word been said? Why have I been treated like this? Why did I respond in that way? Lord, what is going on around me? Why is the world in the state it's in? Why can't I I get the job that I'm, I'm clearly suited for, that I feel is right for me? What is going on? Why can't I get the treatment plan that I want? Why can't my child get into that school that I'd really hoped they would? Why aren't you answering my prayers? What's going on? I feel so confused and conflicted. 
And Peter would have been feeling exactly these things at this very moment as he goes down the stairs to greet these three strangers that he knows are going to ask him to go somewhere. He doesn't know where. But he remembers the message of last week that God is in control. That none of us, none of us have the control that we'd like to think that we have over our own lives. So Peter goes downstairs. He says, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men say, we've come from Cornelius, a centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you've got to say. So Peter, a Jewish follower of Jesus, invites these Gentiles into his house. Now, there were very strict rules about these, very strict social conventions about these sorts of things. Jews and Gentiles didn't mix. They didn't really mix. There was the occasional coming together, we read about plenty of those, but they didn't mix socially. Peter invites them into his house to be his guests. He doesn't say, well, you can... You can kick with the servants. There's a room in the stable. We've heard that before. Instead, Peter says, come into my house as my guest. The next day they go out into their journey. Eventually, they arrive and they find, to Peter's horror, that Cornelius has gathered all these these friends and family. There's a real crowd at his house. He enters and and Cornelius falls at his feet in reverence. Cornelius has has had this angelic instruction. Sorry about that. That wasn't an angelic instruction, by the way. That was... uh, So Cornelius has had this, this angelic instruction, so he, he knows that the man who's coming to his house is someone who's been ordained by God. This whole thing has been put together by God. Peter, at this point, hasn't got a clue. And so when Peter walks in, Cornelius falls at his feet, and Peter's really embarrassed by this. Peter says to him, he says to him, stand up, I'm only a man myself. And so again, this is a Jew saying to a Gentile, there is no difference between us. There is no barrier. Allow there to be no, no, no barrier. I'm a guest in your house. You've, you've invited me here. God's doing something, but don't, don't fall at my feet. Don't fall at my feet. There's no need for that. And then we see this moment. Peter addresses the elephant in the room. He says, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. You see, that whole vision, Peter's now realising that actually it had very little to do with food. Arguably, there is, there is of course, a theological element that, that involves food and what you can and can't eat. But here, Peter's saying that wasn't, that wasn't about food, was it? That was about people. That's about the fact that we are all different. We might not look the same, we might not act the same, we might not have the same education or or monthly salary. We might live, live in different sized houses, we might drive different cars, we might hold different life values. But if I come to you in the presence of God, if I come to you as someone who represents Jesus Christ, then I do not come to you assuming any difference between you and I. God has the authority, not me. I come to you in the presence of God, and in God's eyes, we're equal. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All need a saviour. Peter recognises that the Jewish law had perhaps been misconstrued, or perhaps was out of date, that Jesus had changed everything. He says, God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. 
And that's the message. If we're going to be a community committed church, then first of all, we need to get it into our heads when we go out into the world that we are going to face all sorts of people. We are going to face every different, every different class, race, gender, identity, every different people group we can imagine. And the thing that we have to remember is that God's shown us that no one, no one is impure or unclean. Everyone is loved by God. Each and every single person that we encounter is a gift from God. Cornelius goes on to explain his experience to Peter. And Peter hears for the first time that his, his whole being there was something that God had, had arranged. God had prepared Cornelius for it. God had prepared Peter for it. He would brought the two together, a Jew and a Gentile. And then Peter begins to speak. He speaks, about, he speaks about God. He speaks about how Jesus was sent into the world. He speaks about his own calling. He speaks about the importance of, of, of bringing with them the peace that Jesus had brought into the world. He speaks about the Holy Spirit. He speaks about the fact that he himself was a witness to all of these things that had happened, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost, the, 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 the um, persecution in Jerusalem, all these things that had happened. He, he, he starts explaining all these things. And Cornelius, while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message, not just Cornelius, but everybody there. Don't forget, we were told earlier in the passage he'd gathered his friends and his family. There, were, there wasn't just one small household of Gentiles. This was a whole community. This was a whole community that had been gathered in. And Peter comes there, and he breaks down the barriers. He, he ignores the social convention, the legalism. He shows love. He speaks about a God who, 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 who demonstrates grace and acceptance. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who had heard the message. The circumcised believers, so the Jews who had come with Peter, were astonished. They were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Even on the Gentiles. Suddenly this, this exclusive club that had kind of existed in and around Jerusalem for so long, it's not an exclusive club. The Holy Spirit's being poured out everywhere. This is like a second Pentecost. This is like a second Pentecost all over again. Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptised with water. That's great. As soon as, as, soon as, he, sees, as, soon as he sees it, as soon as he sees them getting the Holy Spirit, right, quick, get, get them baptised, come on. There's no baptismal classes or anything like that. There's no weeks of preparation. Straight away, you've got the Holy Spirit in you, you've heard the message preached, let's get baptised. That, that was the New Testament approach to baptism. So he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. And then at the end of the passage, we're told they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So Peter's kind of set out on this journey, not knowing where he's going, knowing that he's, he, he's a Jew, he's been sent to a Gentile's house, there's all these barriers and social conventions that, that dictate this should not happen. And he ends up staying with them, spending a long weekend with them, enjoying their company, speaking about their, their newfound faith sharing more and more of the gospel and the life and the good work of Jesus Christ. I'm pretty sure when he left this place, he left the Christian community behind him. He left a community that had experienced the unifying love of the Holy Spirit. Baptised believers who knew something pretty special had happened in their midst. So, as we think about our own community, what does it mean for us to be community committed? Well, it means that everything that we do in our community, 
whether it's a church event or initiative, or whether it's individually in our daily lives, we need to be partnering with God. We need to be doing amazing things, and amazing things can happen. I'm sure that, like me, you were all watching a cricket recently. The Ashes started on Friday, don't need me to tell you that. And something amazing happened, which is the reason I brought my phone up, although I wasn't expecting a phone call halfway through the service. But something, something really amazing happened. Last week, you'll remember, there was horrific events happened in Nottingham. Three people were murdered on the street. Really awful, awful events. Well, the two young people, um, Barnaby Webber and Grace O'Malley Kumar, they were both young cricketers. On the first day of the Ashes, um, the Barmy Army, England's um, fan group, um, I'm sure many of you follow them online, and you would have seen, you would have seen that the Barmy Army put out a message online on, um, uh, on Friday, on the morning of, the, of the, the first day of the Ashes, this massive big cricket series that, that started on Friday, and they said this is an important announcement. Now, normally the Barmy Army online, it's, it's banter, and there's a lot of digs at Australia, and it's, it's quite fun, and some of it is a little bit close to the wind, but it's all good, and... Um, they sent this out, important announcement. In the light of the tragic incident in Nottingham this week, we wanted to commemorate Barnaby and Grace, who both played cricket. So please join us in the 53rd over, which was Barnaby's playing number, was 53, the 53rd over of this morning's match for a rendition of Amazing Grace, as requested by their teammates. Out of a tragic, heartbreaking, horrific situation, that many of us will struggle to reconcile with the presence of a loving, gracious God, comes a moment of beauty when 25,000 people in a cricket stadium, as well as hundreds of millions of people watching online or on TV around the world, stand together and sing Amazing Grace in memory of those two young lives. Now, of course, it doesn't make up for what happened. It doesn't put it right. But someone saw an opportunity there. In the midst of tragedy, someone saw an opportunity to do something good. As Christians, we need to go into every conversation, every situation, every, every day of our lives with that sort of radar on. We are surrounded by hurt, hurting people, grieving people, people longing for a better life, people with regrets and sadness, people with broken relationships, people with, with all sorts of stresses and anxieties around them, people who struggle to get out of bed in the morning, let alone face the day. The, the world, the country at the moment, it needs the church. It needs Christians. It needs people who follow Jesus with a heart that is committed to their community, to the people around them who can lift someone's chin up and say, hey, look, don't, don't focus on, on all the, the, the negativity. Instead, look, there is something better to focus on. There is a point to all this. There is one who is in control of all this. There is one who can see the bigger picture that we cannot even begin to imagine what it looks like, but there is one who can. I believe you'll get through this. I believe that you will look back and see why you went through all this. I believe that one day you will be able to use your experiences to help somebody else who's going through something similar. I believe that God has a purpose for you. In the old town where I used to live, Bitteriki in Essex, um, during the time I was there in ministry, there were was, there was several different initiatives that, that started up. 
It's easy to do it in a town because it's just a smaller, a smaller basis. It's, but I know, and I know things like this already happen in, in Norwich as a city. But, but in Billericay, there, there was a guy who, um, he was a, an ex, a retired police officer, and he suddenly had this, this vision to get involved with street pastors. Um, some of you would have be, will be familiar with street pastors. I know there's a similar um, uh, um, operation in, in Norwich. Um, but through his, his vision and through his, his constant work, trying to push it and push it and push it, he built up a really effective street pastors team to the point where other towns were getting in touch and the local police force got in touch and said, look, what you're doing is really, really good. Can we take it elsewhere? Can, we, can, you, can you come and speak to other groups and inspire them and build them up? And suddenly there were other towns locally who on the back of this, this, one, this one guy's work, they were seeing street pastor groups setting up, and as people came staggering out of pubs and clubs at some ungodly hour on a Friday or Saturday night or Sunday morning, there were people there to help them. There were people there offering, offering support, offering um, flip-flops and lollipops and bottles of water and, and phone calls home and safe, safety. Why? Because this guy had a vision. He wanted to commit himself to his community and do something that was a little bit, a little bit out of the ordinary. And God blessed it. God blessed it. And there was, by the time I left the town, there was, a, there was a great big team. And it wasn't just street pastors. There was a team of schools pastors that went in to local schools and offered pastoral support to teachers and students. There was... There was rail pastors, people who would, I never quite understood how that one works, but people who would um, uh, be at local railway stations. Do you know what? One of the most common places for people to commit suicide? Yeah, jump in front of a train. You've got someone there who says, stop, let me offer you hope, let me talk to you. Then potentially you are saving someone's life by doing that. That was the rail pastors, football club pastors. Normally people feel like ending it all after they've been to see Billericay Town play football. But um, it, was, it was a group of people who went and watched the football. And as they watched the football, they'd wander around. They'd talk to the home fans. They'd talk to the away fans. When people got a bit leery, they'd be there just to calm them down a bit and come on, mate, all right, let's have a chat. They were in the community. They were committed to the community. And there were all these different groups. And whenever they went, they had pastors written across the back of their t-shirts. It was a very visual presence. The reputation of the local churches rocketed because they were visual. They were out there. They were seen to be giving themselves to the community. There was no barrier. There was no barrier. Walking through the city of Norwich, when I've, when I've been helping Nikki and a team with the Open the Book sessions on a Monday. If I walk through the, through the market, I've got my NCBC t-shirt on. People notice. People see the initials. They might ask what it is. Certainly people look. I don't normally have that many people notice me when I walk through a city square, but when I, when I wear my church t-shirt, people notice. We need to put it out there. We need to be proud of who we are, of who we stand for, proud to be walking in the name of Jesus. I think of, we've got four cub leaders within our church. Nikki, Catherine, Debbie, John, they, they, they help to lead the local cubs group. Four leaders. They don't force the gospel down the kids' throats but they do teach Christian values. They do allow Christian teaching to come into their sessions. At Christmas and Easter, they're quite overt in teaching the proper stories. They get Jesus in there. And I bet there are generations of kids who have gone to that, that cub group who, who, have, who now, when they're challenged and they hear someone being negative about what a Christian is, they've got, they've got a... a a focal point. Well, actually, I can think back to, to that lady or that man, those people, they were Christians. They were my cub leaders. They were great. I really enjoyed it. They were fun. They were good people. There are generations of kids who benefit simply from having that interaction with positive Christian role models. Later in life, when they hear someone having a, a bit of a dig at the church, they're going to be the ones who say, not my experience, 
No, they're not all like that. You might have come across one bad apple, but believe me, there's plenty of good ones. We need to be getting out in our community. We need to be taking that, that, positive, that positive commitment to our community, the positive nature of Christ and sharing it with people, being that non-anxious presence. But let's be aware. It doesn't always come instantly. Acts 13, we see... We see an instance in, a, in Antioch. We're told on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. Now they'd gone there with one purpose to the synagogue in Antioch. One purpose, which was to share the gospel. But what do they do? This group of apostles, John's just made his way off to Jerusalem. They sit down and they wait. We would love to be able to pray, Lord, give us a hundred new people and a hundred new people walk in. We would love to go out onto the streets and be, be mobbed by people wanting to hear about Jesus. We pray for that. And then we be patient. God's timing is perfect. There'll be people here who came to Christ just having heard the gospel preached once. There'll be others for whom it took years. The apostles sit in a synagogue in Antioch and they wait. They wait to be invited. They don't go forcing their message upon people who don't want to hear it. They wait to be invited to speak. Patience is something that we must practice. Patience and perseverance. And of course, let's not kid ourselves. It's not always going to go the way that we want it. We read in Acts 14, when Paul is preach the gospel he's beginning to get a good response and then a group of irate Jews suddenly turn up looking to rebuild the barriers looking to reinstate the social conventions that had, that had separated people groups how dare you preach about unity how dare you tell people that, that the Holy Spirit is open to all that Jesus loved everyone it's, it's my Jesus, it's, it's, our, it's ours they go looking to, to rebuild those barriers and eventually they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. They didn't just give him a bit of a slap. They stoned him to the point where they thought he was dead. But God was in control. How was Paul feeling then? Pretty awful, I reckon. He was hurting, he was rejected. He was laying there in a pool of his own blood, counting his teeth. But the disciples gathered round him. The disciples gathered round him. You see, being community committed, it means two things. It means we're committed to the people that live in the streets around us. It means that we're committed to the businesses and the local shops. It means that we're committed to everybody that we happen to, to come into contact with during the week, whether it's right here in the local, what, what is local to this church building or whether it is in our local communities. Being committed to the people around us, wherever we happen to be. But it's also, it also means that we're committed to our church community. Because we have people in our midst who regularly go out on the front lines. It might be that they get beaten and battered by the people they work with or on the home front in the family. If you're a Christian on your own in your own family, it can be a lonely place to be. Or it might be that you're, you're on your own at home and you've got your own demons to deal with and it's not out there, it's in here. We need to be committed to our community, our church community, looking after one another. Recognising when someone needs to be supported and pulled in. Travis Head is an Australian cricketer. He was playing on Friday. English batsman miscued a shot up into the air. Travis Head comes running in off the boundary where he'd been fielding, goes to take a catch, gets it in his hands. As he lands, it bounces out, he drops it. He's got 25,000 Englishmen. Ah, hey! He's feeling that big. 
and he has to go back out to the boundary rope to carry on fielding. And then he made another mistake and another mistake. And one of the commentators said, there is no lonelier place in the world to be at the moment than to be Travis Head on that boundary. And eventually the Australian captain put someone else out on the boundary and brought him into a closer fielding position away from the baying Barmy army. And that was good captaincy because the captain recognised this guy's been rattled, he's been shaken. He needs, to, he needs us around him. He needs his teammates around him. So let's pull him in. Let's hold him close. Let's look after him. Annoyingly, yesterday he made 50 runs. But you see, it's good captaincy. We need to be good captains. We need to look out for one another. When someone's on the boundary, it might be they're, they're fighting away and they're loving it. Great, that's where they're called to be. But other times, we need to put an arm around them and pull them in. Committed to our community. Here is just as important as being committed to our community out there. But most of all, we worship a God who is in absolute control and has absolutely or absolute authority over all. Let's pray. Father God, sometimes it can be so difficult to know how to reach out to our community, how to engage in conversation with those around us without putting them off, without being judged. But Father, we thank you that as we've seen this morning from the passages we've looked at, we're reminded once again that even when the world makes no sense to us, even when we are struggling, you are in control. Everything that is going on around us is known to you. Nothing surprises you, nothing shocks you. There is nothing that you're unprepared for or that catches you unawares. Father, we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you will give us a, a renewed strength of faith. As we go out into the world, Father, help us to, to recognize the opportunities that you lay before us. Opportunities where we can, we can talk about our church or talk about our faith. Opportunities where we can encourage other people, where we can recognize a need and serve others, providing for them, helping them, loving them. Father, we are yours. And we pray that you will use us to build your community which will one day fill your kingdom. So bless us we pray in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's go out on a note of praise as we sing. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory.
is rising up. 